Welcome to the Brilliant Perth Podcast. This is Dylan Lamb. It's April, it's episode 7, and it's starting to get chilly in Perth. Winter is upon us. This week, I'm leaning into well-being and how to measure it. So, without further ado, let's meet our guest, Georgina Camp. Alrighty, hey Hollands, welcome back to Brilliant Perth. I'm here with uh, Georgina Camp, the founder of Huber Social at Bloom. Welcome, Georgina. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks for joining us on the show. Really excited um, today to chat about um, your company and this topic of measuring well-being of the planet. Which Thank is, you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, which is pretty juicy and big, um, and I think we'll have a lot of really cool things to talk about. Do you want to maybe get us started by just telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I grew up here in Perth, uh, and I've only, but I've been away for the last nine years and decided to come back in December, and it's been the best decision I've made in a long time. Um, I think most recently I was in Sydney. I was there for about five years, and I've been lucky. I've kind of got to dot around Australia, so Darwin, Melbourne, Adelaide, um, and Perth is the best. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't actually a straightforward choice. I guess um, uh, it's always difficult when you like ambitious and you you head off over east, and then there's that. When am I going to go home? Um, and um, a lot of my friends have stayed over east or have headed overseas and I've come back but I've found I've been like delighted like really what was missing from my life was community and that's what's here um so yeah more about myself I guess um i CEO of Huber Social we started this around about five years it's only been a business for two years coming up to our second anniversary and I have a pretty mixed background in that I did the law and military and and then jumped over to international development and um, ended up finding Cuba with my team so yeah very cool I, that that really makes my heart sing hearing stories about people being drawn back to Perth yeah. um, very cool we yeah. might chat about that a bit more towards the end around um, this sort of brilliant city concept which kind of underlies the show um, yeah, tell us a bit more about Huber. Like, where did the idea come from? How did you go? How did you come to to found yeah. Huber as a business? So, it started. There was three of us, two of the founding partners of a consulting firm that I was working with. We discovered we were very aligned on our values, and we wanted to take what we did and use it for good, as opposed to evil. Um, and and what we did was really just a discipline and thinking about a problem. Um, being very outcome focused and and attacking that with a mix of what is now known as like systems thinking and design thinking so going okay what if you're working with an organization or um, any problem really what's what's the ultimate outcome what are you really trying to achieve and working back from there going what are all the parts of the system that need to work together to deliver that and then finally what should you be measuring to know you're on track to deliver that outcome and we'd been using that across corporate organisations and, and government. Um, and then I guess how we came to form Huber was we'd all been involved in the social sector in 
a number of ways. Um, I myself uh, was finishing my Masters of Development Studies and a problem that kept coming up for me in particular was that organisations and projects are held to account on performance metrics that aren't all aligned to what they're actually trying to achieve. Um, and the same goes in corporate world, bottom where I'm learning as well, because <laughs> we don't really know what to measure. Um, so, and I kept hearing, you know, they'd, go, they'd deem a project as unsuccessful, but you could see on the ground that, you know, people looked better, they were happier, they're holding themselves more confidently, they're healthier. Um, so it was successful in other realms and, and, and people kept telling me, yeah, but you can't measure that stuff. And I thought it got to a point where I was like, I was lucky working with it. my two co-founders. They were experts in measurement. So I thought if there's two guys that can help me work out if we can measure this stuff, it's them. Mm. So we, um, we started working with a couple of not-for-profits, mainly in the youth at risk sector. And the conversation uh, really went the same every time. And it was like, okay, you know, how can we help you? What, what is your problem? And everyone's answer was, we need more money. <laughs> um, and you're like, okay, okay, probably. But how do you know that? How do you know you're even being effective? Like, what does success look like for you? Very consulting speak. Um, and in the social space, it's really, everyone has a different way of defining that. Like, women are empowered or young people are thriving or the first organisation we were with, they called it Responsible Independence, that by the time the kids have come through four or five years with them, they're in a position of responsible independence. So we really started to break that down as a concept. What does that really mean? And then as we started to work across a number of sectors, like male survivors of childhood sexual abuse, uh, victims of domestic and family violence, we could see that if you work with people, the goal is really always the same. And it's about putting someone in the best position for them to fulfil their well-being. So fulfil their own potential and fulfil their well-being. And that looks different for each of us. So how on earth do you measure that? So that's where we started um, and, and developed our well-being measurement framework. And how we measure it is at the top we measure someone's uh, subjective well-being. I don't like using subjective because well-being is subjective. But yeah. we measure their life satisfaction essentially and we use a globally recognised question set to do that currently. And that gives us some a score for someone's um, well-being at that point in time. And then underneath that, to understand what matters for them, each of us require the capability and the opportunity to fulfil our own potential. So we have a very holistic set of human needs underneath capability and opportunity that we then map what those levels are in that context so either for what well, we measure always from an individual's point of view but group it up to a sector or a community etc and then do analysis to be able to say right now this is where they're at and this is what matters most to their well-being so that if you want to help people you should be accountable to their needs and this is what their priority needs are. And then the important part of impact measurement is making sure that those solutions are, in fact, having that intended impact. So is there a positive shift in well-being? And then did the program achieve its outcomes? Like what capabilities did it build, resilience, life skills, etc.? What opportunities did it provide? So that's how we measure well-being. Very comprehensive. That's <laughs> wicked. That's epic. Yeah, that's well, how we thought about it. Um, I first met Georgina, um, just for the listeners, a few weeks ago at an um, event 
just by chance in the city. And I remember you telling me what you did and I was like, sort of mirrored it back. I was like, so pretty much you're measuring the well-being of the planet, which gets me really excited. I think that's really cool. Um, where does happiness fit in all, all of that? Mm. Is that um, Look, I think um, we've intentionally chosen the word well-being um, and depending on your background, that's a more accurate description of someone's like holistic state of functioning. Happiness, I think often people are actually talking about the same thing, but mm. happiness is the catchier word. Yeah. But for us, happiness is just an emotion like fear or anger. That's it's it's and somebody's frequency of happiness might feed their well being, but we don't see the two as the same. So whereas like the Bhutan National Happiness Index is probably more aligned to our sort of idea of happiness. Yeah. Of well being, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I was I was gonna ask you about that. But yeah. seeing as you brought it up, let's let's go there. So sure. My understanding is that Bhutan is like one of the first countries in the world to shift away from GDP as a measure of progress. Yes. How have they done that? What does that mean? Like, yeah, as I understand it, and they're actually, I, I've always thought they were quite secretive about the indicators and the metrics underneath it, but apparently that's not true. So um, I'm continuing to investigate that. But as I understand it, there's nine indicators that they use to then determine someone's well-being. Um, I'm not sure if they weight those. I believe they do. There is a weighting, but I don't know the kind of maths behind that um, to understand. Uh, but, yeah, it's essentially if you make those nine, then somebody's well-being is in a good position. I don't believe it's different to ours in that we have the subjective well-being as the overall measure and then we're understanding what drives it as opposed to selecting nine things that we think make up well-being or even 100 things that make up well-being. And we're very holistic in what we measure. Mm. And that's been really interesting because it's completely debunking things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and things because people have, we can't help it, we, we always look at the world through our own perspective and people have perspectives on what basic needs are. And depending on where someone is, things matter differently. So our first, well, one of the first applications, um, we're measuring the well-being of women in northern Uganda across all these villages. And the two things that correlated highest with well-being at that point in time was their time in program, which was really great for the program um, managers. And second was their access to water, which, you know, considering context, probably isn't very surprising. But then soon after that, went and did another project over in a slum in Bangalore. And... The three highest correlates with well-being was nutrition, access to water, and then problem-solving skills. And we measured problem-solving skills in a number of ways. Um, and look, that's only a first indicator, but it's interesting for that to come up as a, having a, higher, a new, re, unique relationship with well-being when this is a community where uh, it's really unsafe. It's run by a local mafia. There's uh, acts of violence and sexual harassment every day. Um, and problem solving is coming up over and above some of these other things that if you walked in, you'd go, but their basic needs aren't met. They live in a, a tin hut. Um, but, yeah, so I think I think that's what's quite unique about our framework is that we don't have any weightings in the factors that we measure. We just assume they're all human needs and it's, it's always going to be unique as to what drives... Uh, well, not maybe hugely, I think. We do look for... We, 
the value that we try and add as well as do these sector analysis. So to be able to say youth at risk, these are the four things that matter generally. Um, so if you're a youth at risk service provider, you really should focus on this. But then if you're able to measure and, and, and manage individuals, then you can allow for more kind of um, individualised values. Mm. Really cool. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, so you're doing a lot of work, lots sort of internationally. Have you got any projects on the cards for Australia? Yeah, no, we do both. You do both, yeah. yeah we were like, I was really surprised that we got picked up for some international work quite quickly, but I think we fit community development really nicely. Yeah. Um, but yes, so we've done a fair bit with Youth at Risk here in Australia um, and male survivors and um, of childhood sexual abuse and victims of domestic and family violence. And then also moving into more schools, which is fantastic because there's big recognition in the education system that just like GDP is not a great sole indicator of humanity's progress, academic success is not a great indicator of a person or a young person's kind of potential. Um, so they're talking a language of well-being and they're investigating how do we measure that. So that's exciting. We've got um, some progressive schools that are... Uh, we're having talks with and then I always get there's there is so much going on um like mums in business like the great thing is wherever there's people we apply so we've we have started with a focus on not-for-profits and in the charitable sector but we're breaking into um the corporate sector and that's really exciting because uh there's some really big organisations that understand that employees' well-being is very much linked to their business outcomes, but they're, they're moved beyond employee well-being in terms of let's just throw some more yoga at them. They know that's not what matters to their people and that, so they really want the level of sophistication that we bring, so much so that they then want to be able to build business models out of that. To understand, okay, if these are the drivers for our employees' well-being, and map that to the business outcomes that they're getting. So I think I mean, that's so good for everyone. Mm. Um, so yeah, some really exciting applications happening, and that's happening in Australia too with us. So that's wicked. Yeah, yeah I'm really keen to follow that and see if you can get some stuff going with WA. Yeah, I think those guys yeah. do. <laughs> I'll try and edit that out, but um, yeah, we're just at Bloom in a, a room next door to some people that are having a lot of fun. They're, they're, they probably um, would score quite high on well-being, I'd say, <laughs> when you test them out. Yeah. So how do you actually go about, like, collecting your data? Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. So we have four ways that we collect data. Um, not very groundbreaking. They're just the ways you collect data. Number one, though, we do rely heavily on surveys um, because that's the only way you can get one pers a person's actual measure of their own levels of capability and, of course, their well-being. Um, so we do that, like we can do that through online distribution, obviously, or in the case of Uganda, it was with 1,200 booklets and a team of trained translators, which was an amazing experience because we were dealing with women that had never even held a pencil before. So to get them to a point where they understand what you're doing and then for a while we were investigating different like connecting our system to distributed ledger technology and everything to protect the integrity. And I'm thinking through the consequences of that 
in terms of how, when I'm next in Uganda, do I tell these women that their data is <laughs> going to go on this system on a blockchain? <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, but that's like that's a whole other discussion on the ethics and of data collection. So yeah, yeah. coming back to so surveys, then. Um, we do uh, research and then mapping of other data sources that are available, so census data, everything, um, and then um, direct observation as well as focus discussion groups. Um, and uh, what we're building out of that is, as you started with, the, a global wellbeing database. Mm -hmm. So we have, um, we have the prototype of that and you can scan over where we've done projects, obviously, see the score of well-being, drill down to the next level, which is country-specific, and we're mapping in um, different indicators, so the social progress in, um, index, um, human development index and things, which uh, help because then if you've got this well-being score overlaid on that, you can start to see, oh, that maybe education rates don't always equal high well-being or, or whatever. So that's kind of the impact that we want to have at that level. And then for organisations, they can go down to the next level and even down to individual levels where that's been given permission. So, yeah, okay. that's Very what cool. it looks like. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, one thing I'm noticing through my work and just through chatting with some other brilliant people around town, but is this more and more talk about the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. Can we maybe just chat about how that's related to your work? And we, we were yeah. talking about this before we started the podcast, but around how maybe quantifying our impact against the Sustainable Development Goals is, is maybe not necessarily the best thing for us to be doing. Not, not, not necessarily the best thing. It's just that they have a, they have a place yeah. and there's limitations to how they're useful. So we're certainly not like in competition with them. We would, if anything, strengthen them. We're kind of at, whilst we're map, we're collecting it up to a macro level. We're collecting what's driving things and from a micro level. So sustainable development goals, um, their limitations are like a lot of other frameworks out there, in that because we haven't really understood how to universally measure social value what the best approach we've come up with is to select a whole set of indicators that we think matter most to be able to say if we meet them, we'll all be in a better position. What they don't allow for, so they're, mis, they're not misused, but they're not very effectively used as well. So a lot of organisations will say, oh, we map to three of the sustainable development goals. And then you go, okay, are you measuring yourself against the indicators against under those goals? And they're like, what? <laughs> they, don't, they don't know that there's actually indicators. But then even at the indicator level, again, that's just a bit of a, an accounting practice to say how many, it's really how many people have you impacted and how many jobs have you created, not what is the impact of those jobs, what is the impact of touching those many people. Mm. Um, and so in that way, we're not actually getting a picture of overall are we better off. So a very like probably crude and simple uh, example of that is if you looked at Australia against the Sustainable Development Goals, um, we might be really great on some and then we're seeing mental health issues, diabetes, suicide all go through the roof. So uh, how can, uh, do they counteract where we're doing good or bad? We don't know. So we can't say overall is Australia actually in a better position. Um, and uh, most of the frameworks out there fall folly to all of those limitations as well. I think the other important thing to 
mentioned with the sustainable development goals is again it makes the assumption that it just infers well-being societal well-being from those 17 indicators it doesn't actually measure if we're achieving societal well-being and and it doesn't allow for you knowing if that's a good thing necessarily to focus on in that context so another example would be you know we people will say oh we want to go in and give education to that community and um Again, on the face of it, it might sound good, but you need to understand, was it effectively done? Did it have the impact? So were we giving them the right education for their context? But we stop so short of asking those questions because we go, tick, we've done a good thing. Um, Whereas we have multiple cases where it's shown we've actually not helped just through providing education um, because we've set them people up for something that doesn't exist in that environment and actually is detracted from what would have supported them better. So, yeah, yeah, if that makes sense. But that's that's something that I kind of struggle with with the sustainable development goals, only in, when people seem to think that if we just all align to them that we'll have the impact that we think we'll have and we're actually still, they don't give us that overall picture. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very cool. I mean, that's similar it's kind of challenged some of my thinking because I sort of have seen and questioned even things with like my own superannuation fund or with the business I was working for in the past. Um, but that's really challenged some of my thinking about what sort of is the overlying framework that we're all working towards. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar as well with like my motivations behind this podcast is, um, which is something we might talk about in a sec around smart cities, but it's around like a brilliant city is kind of what weaves all this great mm-hmm. stuff that's happening in the world or in Perth together. Yeah. And what are we truly sort of working towards as humanity, you know. Yeah. Um, so well-being, yeah. I think, is a really cool thread. Um, yeah, and, uh, like, it's fascinating because it's not a new concept. Um, Aristotle really started talking about it. Uh, he defines it as more eudaimonia and being in this position that, you know, where good and bad feeds that. And you're, you're in a position where no matter what comes your way, you, you're relatively okay. And he explored all other ends as what the chief good, he calls it. Um, he explored virtue, money, and honor, and and really virtue and honor were um, you you can have virtue and honor, all the virtue and honor in your world, and be quite miserable. And then money is clearly not the chief good because it's just a means to an end. Um, and so he, he and he actually uses the word well being, or at least translations of his work <laughs> that are very old. So, but then you see that passed on and on and on. And if you keep asking. I, that's where I always remind myself where if somebody wants to say no but surely the end goal is this or this it's like well but what for you know what for why do we want economic growth and it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. it's still an important thing to measure but it's not the measure of success so yeah well-being is is really and that's you know there's lots of different ways to define that but it's a it's a a good enough word for us. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. So let's talk a bit about smart cities mm. and kind of like for me, like my background is in engineering and I was working for an organisation that was going through this sort of, I think a lot of organisations are going through this digital transformation, like some bit of a buzzword, but mm. around, to me, like we're getting a bit obsessed about tech and mm. everyone's talking cloud, internet of things, you know, yeah. being able to put a sensor in everything and be able to sense and see a system. But yeah, for me, like one of my motivations with the podcast around sort of a brilliant city is a level up from a smart city and it's 
getting more dialogue going around um, the roles that the role that us humans play in cities. Yeah, and right. really questioning our relationship with technology. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts around smart cities? Are, are we? Is it? Yeah. What's What's great? What What's not so great? How, what role will wellbeing mm. play in the smart cities movement? Yeah. Well, they, they've come a long way. They've newly adopted wellbeing as the measure of success for smart cities, at least the Council of Australia and New Zealand Smart Cities, and they're working out how to measure that or how they want to with their framework. Um, But yeah, the smart cities movement has certainly, they've been talking people-centred design and stuff. I think they've realised a while ago now that tech for tech's sake isn't going to help anyone. Um, So yeah, I think it's really fantastic, but I really like your your response to that that it's more about we put all the focus on tech and the celebration of tech in the city where really it is all about people um and so you have to start with that and tech is just a a merely another way to foster somebody's well-being and if you get too wedded to tech being the solution um yeah might not actually have the best solution (laughs) so yeah, it'd be interesting. it would be interesting to see, I don't know, if they started measuring where a tech is having a negative impact on someone's well-being yep. um, and how they might turn that off or adjust it. I mean, social um, media is a classic use, isn't it? Like looking yeah. up read studies of mental health and like young kids and stuff and the time that we spend hooked on, like schools now that are backflipping and going, we're banning iPads and yeah. stuff for schools. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and the question set that we use to measure well-being, um, subjective well-being, uh, the scientist that discovered that is, or psychologist, is um, positive psychology professional, um, and he's known as Dr. Happiness. <laughs> and he's applied, obviously, it's been hugely applied. There's incredible data sets from this, which is part of the reason we chose it as a starting point. But um, what his study reveals is that relationships are actually what matters most to humans, which yep. shouldn't really be surprising. Um, so then, yeah, cities should all be about fostering and opening up relationships, not putting us behind screens and isolating us from each other. Mm. Mm. That's maybe a really cool lead-in. Let's chat a bit more about systems thinking because that's okay. a space that I've really dived into in the last six months. Okay, wonderful. Around complexity. Because it seems yeah. like with what you're doing, you... To me, you've got a really good handle on complexity. If you get a project or you're working, you know, through stuff with Hoover and, mm. you know, you're working in a different context, how do you, like, deal with complexity? Mm. How have you sort of, in your, on your journey through the tools you've developed, manage complexity? Uh, I would say, like, our framework is, like, a first principles-based approach. So, mm. I mean, I'm not... I. I'm not really an expert in systems thinking or complexity. I think um, so much of that stuff is actually just logical thinking that we, so I I don't probably have all the right lingo to explain how I think about things. Um, And all accounts I always hear with complexity that it can be broken, anything can be broken down to very simple, like a few simple things. I I wish my colleague was here with us because he and so the two kind of other co-founders to Huber did massive study on complexity and systems thinking um, across, I think it was all project management around the world. And they worked out that actually complexity was 
driven by only two factors, which was the level of uncertainty and something else. I got that. Anyway, what they found was to keep people satisfied with the rigour of the study, they had to leave in all these other things to measure. But really, it was only ever driven by these two things, which is fascinating. So uh, what am I saying there? Yeah, I guess coming back to that, how do we deal with complexity? We've Social problems are, I guess, very complex problems because they deal with individuals and what matters to each of us is different. So we've just simplified that in thinking through it through three simple ways where overall the goal is well-being and we each require the capability and opportunity. So understanding where someone is then if it's kind of, well, if that's the goal, what are the two inputs and how do you measure that? And that's what looks different for each individual. So that's taking, and if you're working to address that, then you solve that problem for an individual and then solve it for the community. So um, I guess that's been our approach to really complex problems. We always start with the needs of people and address them mm. um, as opposed to everyone else coming in with what they think is the problem or the solution for understanding what the needs are. Mm. Mm. Very cool. Um, let's talk a bit about the social impact movement because mm. um, that's kind of like pretty hot in Perth right now. Um, I've had a lot of friends that have studied like um, there's the Centre for Social Impact here at UWA mm. and people that are using sort of like doing a year like grad cert and social impact and then mm. switching careers. and but Just hired a girl who did that. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Yeah. But I'm really interested, sort of, I almost joke, like, kind of popping the bubble a bit because um, I think there's some great positive impacts, but there's also some negatives mm. where people are like, oh, social impact, you know, or they're starting a new company that, um, you know, sells T-shirts and donates its profits to yeah. this sort of thing. It's like that's just perpetuating the problem or people that are tackling yeah. homelessness. Where do you think is the future of that sort of, like, emerging sort of discipline? Um, mm. I think maybe your answer would already be around well-being and quantifying towards that. Yeah, or... I mean that is the issue with things as they get bigger is that the yeah their effectiveness to actually create change gets diluted. Like I kind of get I wince a little bit when someone says they're purpose driven. I'm like, well, we're all purpose driven. You can be profit driven. That's a purpose. Yeah. So it's like, what's your purpose? Um, and yeah, and then you go to really philosophical questions like, is there anything? Is is something that's purely altruistic actually a thing? Because really, it's feeding your well being and doing it, which is mm. totally fine. Um, where do I see the social impact movement going? Um, I haven't really thought about the negatives so much, but I see. I see there's going to be a time, and it's we're getting there sooner than, um, than kind of we probably all anticipated where the need to label social enterprise or a for-profit or a not-for-profit or a charity is just going to be redundant because yeah. everyone's going to be accounting their social value and needing to do that and being asked to. And it's great if you've got... I mean, I um, had a very senior consultant and a, one of the top four come to me saying... you know, She was in tears. She's like, I'm so sick of our company saying they're doing good and having a social impact. And she's like, they've promised me it's that they'll do... They really will have an impact now, but otherwise I walk. And she was like, I want to work with you guys. I'm like, do you realise... I'm like, I can't pay you what they pay you. <laughs> but this is... Like, and that's like becoming more and more like the people that want to... 
are willing to give up money to actually have an impact and therefore that's forcing these companies to really be genuine about what they're doing and and therefore the pressure internally let alone from the community at large to actually and we're more enlightened about this stuff like we corporate social responsibility has gone so far beyond will we give x amount to charity it's like well you know what about the actual operations of your bank what does that look like on the community um so yeah i I look more i haven't really thought about the negatives but yeah i I think and i what i'm really excited about being back in perth is that the social impact movement here in particular is very collaborative As, as we were speaking before you hear it everywhere in social impact that no one person can have the answer and we all have to be prepared to work together and someone else own the answer. But in Sydney and Melbourne, it's like we're all here to work together. It just so happens that I have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so here in Perth, I've really seen people walk that talk, which is really exciting yeah. and really help each other. Um, so... Yeah, hopefully in Perth it's all quite... But yeah, I think yeah. we... Yeah. I agree, yeah. Yeah. I think for me it's maybe the size. I always joke that Perth's just a big be, country yeah. town. Yeah. But it's like, it's that um, you're only ever one degree away from like, you open your mouth and say, oh, you know, I've started yeah. a social at yeah. measuring well-being. It's like, oh my God, you know, bang, bang. Yeah. Thing, thing, you've got to meet all these people. And, then... and the people, like that's definitely in the East too, but you get, um, I don't know, it's a bigger pool of different fish. And I, I feel like there's kind of two streams over there where there's people that genuinely and there seems to be the same in politics or in the military anything where there's mm. people that are really there for the progress of humanity and there's people there to feed their ego so um yeah. and you do you can sniff them out pretty quick mm. so yeah but Perth seems to have more of the people that are really here <laughs> to do the yeah. genuine Very good cool. stuff um Maybe because seeing as we're sitting in bloom, one of the things I'm noticing hanging around a lot of student entrepreneurs is they're, they're and maybe it's a thing or not, you might have a better understanding of the data, behind, if there's any data behind it, mm-hmm. but um, younger generations being more interested in, in solving social and environmental problems. Mm. What advice do you have to say a young person that's interested, really interested in what you're doing in well-being or in working in a career um, that's progressing humanity? Yeah. Hmm, what advice? I'm trying not to turn it into a picture. I was like, how do I not get humor? Um, Well, that's why I'm really excited about what we're doing because we are getting professionals coming, approaching us because we've taken a very business-centric approach to what we're doing. We use data um, and we're allowing... So we've turned our product into an accreditation. We used to just do all the social impact measurement ourselves. But for us to build this global wellbeing database that is nationally representative and uh, and current year on year, we need massive network of people collecting data out there. So we've opened up what we do to people that want to come and become accredited, which is exciting because if something like this takes off, it's created a whole new employment marketplace. And it's the accreditation is not you don't have to just live and breathe you but it's just another tool on your belt of tools if you're in a consultant that you can do a huber social impact measurement project Mm. um and and that's really exciting because yes we're seeing automation and tech maybe turn off a whole lot of jobs but we couldn't have even 
imagined a world where you could have a job to measure social value. And we might see banks get smaller and we see social value economists and social economists get bigger. So I, um, yeah, I'm really excited for the future and, um, yeah, they can get in contact with us via our website if they want to come become accredited. Is that cheeky? No, absolutely <laughs> But, not. yeah, there's so absolutely many good not. movements out there. Yeah. Um, B Corp, Centre for Social Impacts, another really – they've been – doing systems thinking and approaching this like that for longer than Huber was around and they're a constant source of great information for us. And, yeah, I think this is this space is only get, getting bigger. Mm. Um, and certainly I w- it was like, oh, this is going to be hard to find. We've had a few interns and we weren't sure who would be interested and then the two interns I had from Sydney Uni last year said that our placement was the most competitive and so they stayed back and, like, they didn't wine and dine the, <laughs> the um, supervisor, but they were like, yeah, we just charmed them and made sure we got this because that's everyone wants to be able to actually get fulfilment out of their work, Yeah, which is exciting for our generation. Um, but we're no longer – we don't – we're not just making money and then wanting to give back. We're going, we can do the two and we don't have to – yeah, which is, a, I'd say, a product of being – quite a lucky generation in terms of job security and then um, financial security so yeah very cool we might i'll wrap it up with our final question which is how i usually like to end the show but and i think we i think i kind of know what the answer is going to be but what's your take on um how we'll we'll create or make perth a brilliant city Mm, well obviously focusing on what matters for our well-being and I think in particular what me personally brought me back here was the communities here. So I don't know necessarily how you create community. It's kind of like how do you create a positive culture, but maybe what you were saying um, like halfway through it starts at home. Like everyone can be kind and and more collaborative and that's what I guess that's really what's at the heart of what I'm seeing in the social impact movement here in Perth is that people are kinder and they're genuine it's not this really competitive space it's truly collaborative and in through kindness you are able to throw around a lot more ideas and have less fear of failure so then we all be more innovative and it's probably why often we see these incredible innovations come out of Perth it's like this little city that packs a big punch for its size because and I mean you always hear all the cool Australian legends and things come out of little country towns so I think yes Perth is a big country town but that's why we do so well so mm. yeah we've if let's work out let's measure our well-being let's work out what really does matter but I'm sure it's not going to fall short of our relationships and our communities and uh, we should just do everything we can to build them brilliant Thanks for your time, Regina. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, Dylan. If you find this podcast valuable, then please subscribe and leave me a review on your podcasting platform of choice. If you'd like to recommend a future topic or a brilliant guest, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via our website at Holonic dot com dot au or via my personal linkedin page that's it holons have a brilliant week and we'll see you next week